swing and a fly ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Up and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. In right field. There's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carroll's in the right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. It's episode four, our first episode after the All-Star break. So no shortage of topics to discuss. And of course, I'm joined by Jeff Conine, who's rocking a Marlins jersey today. I'm excited to guess who it is, but it's been a wild All-Star break. And I'm excited to get your takeaways from the Derby, the game, and just everything in between. Yeah, no, it was an exciting weekend. Uh, Obviously, this time of year, uh, the All-Star Festivities are a buzz, and uh, I was tuned in the whole time, and uh, I was texting you while you were there at the stadium, so I got the insider's view of what was actually going on, so it's all good, man. Can't wait to talk about it. It's actually funny. I felt like you were giving me the inside view because we were up uh, behind home plate, kind of high up in the in the upper deck, so every ball looked like a home run. And I'm looking at that vantage point, especially with cores, and we're looking, we're like, is that one gone? Is that one gone? But then there were some that just – you watch it come off the bat and you knew that thing was going to go. And there was no shortage again of just incredible, incredible power display. And there's a few guys I want to talk about because I'm going to guess that the Jersey you're wearing is one of the guys I like to compare Vlad Guerrero jr. To, and it's Miguel Cabrera. Is that who we have going right now? No, sorry. Disappoint. Okay. Give me two more guesses. I can't get it wrong. Uh, Marlins. It's the throwback. It's, we got the teal. It's that one of my favorite jerseys of all time. It can't be Gary Sheffield. Nope. Nope. Can I have one hint? Um, I mean, any hint's going to give it away. Yeah, just, just tell me so I can just – oh, it is yourself. Well, technically. It is myself. Come on, man. I didn't know we it's could do that. all-star game. <laughs> right there. Oh, I, had to, I had to. I had to. I saw the All Star patch, and I'm like, I don't usually dig my. I don't usually don't dig myself much, but I thought this was appropriate, and you know, uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you about all the. You know, it's all signed. It got autographs all over it. From that is the coolest team. jersey ever. And so uh, you hit the nail on the head there because anybody else, my first guess is that they're wearing their own jersey, <laughs> but because it's you, and like you said, I, I usually don't dig myself. I'm thinking. Who, who is he wearing to try to trick me? I, because I was like, there's no way. But that is an awesome jersey. So what, what you did is you got it signed from that all-star team or a lot of the guys from the team when you were there. Because we yeah. talked about that last episode. Those teams were loaded. And, man, and now I'm like, I feel like that might have been the most embarrassing thing I've done in a while to not guess that it was your jersey. <laughs> but, uh, what's the story behind uh, some of the signatures there and that experience of just getting on the field with – some of the most loaded line, the most loaded lineup I've ever seen, I think. Well, yeah, we talked about this a little bit last episode, but you know, when you go into as uh, a fairly young ball player, I was only my second full season in the big leagues uh, when I was able to get to the, my first all-star game, this one in Texas, uh, same thing, you know, you walk into the locker room, you see all the jerseys hanging up, 
And I kind of liked back in the day where you wore your own team's jersey in the All-Star game. Uh, it was very recognizable. Uh, you knew it immediately, what you were wearing. And to see all those you know, uh, greatest players of all time in that locker room with their own jerseys hanging up, you know, you see the Griffey and the Ripken and the, uh, well, Ripken was on the other side at that time, but, you know, uh, Fred McGriff and Mark Grace and uh, Ozzie Smith and all these great players that I got to play with just for a day, you know, I was teammates with these guys for a day. So as a young player walking into a situation like that, it was almost overwhelming. Like I don't even belong here right now, but uh, as a young player, you bring things to the all-star game that you want signed for by the whole team. So they've got this room, this huge room that you label your, I brought, I think two or three dozen baseballs. You put them in this room, you label, you know, that it's yours. And then they usher guys in there like, Hey, whenever you get a chance, can you go in the room and sign? It literally takes you an hour to sign all the stuff that's in there. And I put this Jersey uh, in there. Obviously I got the entire team to sign it. I think I put two or three dozen baseballs in there. They probably hated me because I didn't know if I was ever going to be back at the all-star game. So I wanted as much memorabilia for myself as I could. And over the years I've used them for auctions and things like that. So, uh, but this was uh, one of my favorite items I've ever gotten signed was this Jersey and uh, it's hanging up proudly in my room. And like I said, it takes about an hour to sign all the stuff. And then you get to take all that back and give it out to family and friends and use it for auctions. And uh, it was just an absolutely cool experience. Yeah, I was stressed out, racking my brain. Like, who else was the Marlins All-Star that year? Who else could it have been? But that jersey, I mean, you mentioned the names, the people that are on it. But it's also a really cool reminder of the fact that you said you don't belong there, that feeling, that that weird feeling when you first break through. But you did belong there. And that was a day you mentioned you shared the field with them. You're equals to them. You both, you're all getting that designation of being, you know, the best players in the game at that moment. And that jersey is a reminder when you look at all those signatures that every time you look at it, you've got those names right alongside yours. And I think that's something that is just so tough to beat and so special. We talk about how talented those teams are and uh, to crack the starting lineup is usually pretty hard, but they do a good job of getting everybody in. And you got in in one of your all-star appearances and as a guy off the bench, I don't know what the history is on that. Do you know how often a player off the bench has won all-star MVP because you came in, hit a bomb and uh, right behind you, I know we were struggling to fit it in because your wall is just so covered in amazing memorabilia everywhere, but you've got the all-star MVP trophy, which it's just to the right. And I can, I can see it. Yeah. Pick that thing up for people on I'll YouTube. Pick it up. Uh, we'll get that thing. Yeah. That's the uh, all-star MVP trophy. And, uh, for those like said, display it proudly and uh it's a very heavy piece of machinery I was gonna say, that thing looks like it's 30 pounds yeah but it's solid lucite so it's very heavy so for those who can't see it we will have it in the article uh online i'll have the picture of uh of jeff's trophy because that is absurd and what was that whole situation like did, did you even did it even cross your mind once you hit the home run and once you came home and scored and the game was over that you could be the mvp of that game as a guy off the bench well, it was kind of a long series of events. You know, I was in the All-Star game the year before in Pittsburgh, and I was the only position player not to get into the game. So it was a tight game late, uh, and uh, Jim Fergosi was the manager. Uh, he was with the Phillies at the time, and, um, you know, he didn't get me into the game. I was holding back. I was the only position player left, like I said, so he was holding me back just in case we tied it up and they needed uh, an extra player later on. We ended up winning, I think, in the bottom of the ninth on a, a thrill. It was one of the best games I've ever been a part of, but we won. Uh, I think Tony Gwynn scored the winning run, and I was sitting on the bench 
and I never get a, never got into the game. So the Florida faithful, they started emailing, and I think we played the Phillies right afterwards. So they started emailing and uh, kind of expressing their distaste for, for Gosey and not getting me into the game. So when they, he came up to the plate, you know, exchanged lineups, the whole crowd was booing him like crazy. And it was just, you know, I felt good about that, that, you know, obviously it was a great experience being there, but I didn't get into the game. So that kind of stung a little bit. So fast forward to the next year, uh, Philippe Lou is the manager from the Montreal Expos. And he said he was actually in an all-star game that he did not get in. So oh, wow. he said, I'm going to make it a point. Everybody is going to play tonight. So as about the seventh inning, uh, he said, I'm going to pinch hit for Ron Gant. So I'm on deck. It's two outs. Fred McGriff is at the plate and he ends up striking out. So I go back in the dugout. I've got a, another inning to think about my at bat at the time. It's a two, two game. The only two hits that the National League had at the time were two solo home runs by Craig Biggio and uh, Mike Piazza. So that's how our two runs were scored. And I'm getting up and I see, I think it was Steve. No, I know it was Steve Ontiveros was warming up in the bullpen. I have no idea who he was. We didn't have interleague play back then. So Matt Williams, who was standing right there uh, at the end of the dugout, he had already come out of the game. And I asked for a scouting report on Steve Ontiveros. And he's like, hey, man, he loves his cutter, cut fastball. Uh, he loves to throw that pitch a lot. So I'm like, all right, that's about it. And he goes, that's what you look for, cut fastball. So I get up to the plate and sure enough, first pitch, I'm taking all the way. I just want to see one. And it was a cut fastball that was high for a ball. And I'm like, oh, I back out. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to take another one just to see another pitch. I got to calm down a little bit. The nerves are going. And right before I stepped in, I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to swing away in case he gives me a meatball. And sure enough, he throws one right down the middle of the plate, cut fastball, just like Matt Williams said, and I deposited it in the left field. And by far the biggest hit or moment in my baseball career, you know, at the All-Star game, you hit a home run. I mean, who doesn't dream of that? So uh, a lot of my friends afterwards told me, oh, my God, you have the biggest smile on your face when you rounded third because I was a very stoic player. I didn't really That's uh, what I was going to say. I didn't ex change expression much. And they said, wow, we've never seen you smile on a baseball field. So – uh, that's how excited and happy I was, you know, I come into the dugout and I'm looking at the score and thinking about the situation. And I'm like, wow, I'm the go ahead home run. There's only been three hits. I'm the go ahead home run. There is a possibility that I might get the MVP nod in this situation. Um, I didn't know about what pitchers had done at that point. Uh, obviously it was a low scoring game, but I think this was a pretty exciting moment late. And sure enough, I'm sitting on the edge of my edge of the bench and Randy Myers closes out the game and uh, uh, the TV crew comes over, taps me on the shoulder and says, Hey, we've been named the, the all-star game MVP. So I went out on the field and, and did my interview and it was, uh, it was surreal. It's amazing how you go from not even getting in, in the game the, the first time around. And then the second game you're waiting, waiting, waiting. I mean, so basically 90% of the innings of your all-star game experience were watching it. And then you get in and you win the MVP, which all of the guys, a majority of the guys that got to play maybe most of both games can't say. And that's just the amazing thing about it. But when, when you look at the numbers, then you're one for one in the all-star game with a home run and that's it. Slugging 4,000. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of, of the intro. When you listen to the intro for the show, it's uh, when you go four for four in the first game at you know, the Marlins stadium in 93 and the broadcaster says he, he ought to just retire. It's basically right. what you did in the all-star game. You hit your bomb, got your MVP and you, and you dipped. W what did you get then? I know they give, they give out a car 
nowadays. Did you get anything special on top of that absurdly heavy and awesome trophy? No, I was uh, back then. It was like a van that they donated to, I think, the Boys and Girls Club. So I didn't get anything personally. And then a few years later, they started handing over keys to a brand new shiny Corvette. And I'm like, dang, man, that would have been nice. But uh, it went to a good cause. And, um, you know, just the experience of being able to win that with the Marlins jersey on, you know, was so young in the uh, franchise's existence kind of helped put us on the map a little bit. A hundred percent. And then a couple of years later, helping your team win the World Series, I think helps you put you on the map a little bit more, too. Uh, one question on the All-Star game specifically, and then I want to talk about some of the takeaways from the game uh, that just happened last night. The All-Star game used to matter uh, in terms of winning and losing. And I'm always torn on that because on one side of it, it's an exhibition match and you want it to be fun and you don't want players not getting in and you want it to be more of a, of a spectacle. But on the other side, there's always a level of having something being more competitive and mattering more that makes it more fun and enjoyable to watch. What do you think about that whole situation? Where do you stand on that? Because obviously when you were playing in the All-Star games, they determined home field advantage for the World Series. Yeah, exactly. It meant a lot. But, you know, going into it, um, I don't think players were that forward thinking. I don't think they came into the game thinking, oh, my God, we got to win this game because it's going to matter because, you know, 99 percent of the teams don't even make it to the World Series. So most of the guys don't really care who gets home field advantage. Um, And, you know, this is the only three days off you really get for the entire year. So if you're selected an all-star game, what a treat and an honor uh, to be part of that. And for me, it was amazing. But just think about if it's your 10th one or 11th one or 12th one, I think these guys are like, dang, uh, I think some of them might want the three days off rather than go be a part because it's exhausting. I mean, there's a lot um, of your time. It's taxing with interviews and autograph requests and appearances and things like that. Family time uh, is taken away. So it's an exhibition, 100%. Uh, I don't really think the players care that it means something as far as, you know, going into the world series, who gets home field advantage. Um, I think that should be determined on the season and who had the best record going in. That should be determined who's got home field advantage. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's just a little bit of the kid in me, I guess, because back when, when I was a kid, I used to convince myself that one, the Marlins are going to go to the world series and two, that it would matter that the national league would win. And one more question that just came in my mind as I thought about that is the national league has now, they're now three, 20, and one in the last 24 All-Star games. How is that possible? Yeah, I don't even know. It's hard. One of those things you can't really explain statistically because you've got All-Stars on both sides. On both sides. But, you know, when you look at uh, the overall record, I think I saw at the screenshot at the bottom was like 45, 43, and two. So even though the, the National League is three and 20, they were at one point 20 and three because it's almost a dead even over the entire history of the all-star game. So it's one of those anomalies. I think that they're just in a, a rut right now, as far as statistically, I mean, you would never guess that would ever happen, but it's probably going to flip at some point. It's funny too, because you have players go from the AL to the NL and vice versa. And, and then they still just embody the losing culture of the right. national league all-star team. It's just a losing culture there. Uh, they got to fix that. But the other thing too, you can't blame it on the manager. Different manager every time also. And I think managers get scapegoated more than any other. I think baseball managers get scapegoated as much as any position in any sport. But that's that's another topic. But speaking to this specific game, because I had a lot of fun watching it. We had a lot of fun watching the Derby. And we're going to pivot to that in a minute because we're going to talk about hard hit baseballs. Vlad Guerrero Jr. in his first at bat. 
and we'll talk about MVPs. You now share something. Vlad Guerrero Jr. now shares something with you. It's an, it's an MVP, but he was the youngest player now to ever win an all-star MVP at 22 years old. He hit one right off of Max Scherzer that almost hit him in the head. It was terrifying for a second. We saw him go over and give Scherzer a hug after. And that's what makes the game fun is it's just all the informality of it. But right. it would have been really scary. It was 110 miles an hour off the bat. That being said, it was a ground out because baseball is a tough game and you can hit it 110 and still walk back to the dugout. But the next at bat, he got his money's worth on 111 and hit it 468 feet off of Corbin Burns. So these are two of the best pitchers in the game, two pitchers he hasn't seen a ton of, given that they're in the National League. And he makes them look like nobody special. Uh, like what, practice. <laughs> it was amazing. So first the line drive up the middle. I mean, that's a great swing off of Max freaking Scherzer, but then off of Corbin Burns, who's been incredible to hit it 468. They had Tatis mic'd up, right? And Tatis was just looking like, holy crap. And when you got that guy reacting that way, you know, you've got something special. I, what stood out to you? How is he able to just generate? I know we talked about him in the past, but just in that game, like, what did you see from Vlad? He's just a special talent uh, for one, you know, and I played against his dad, who was another special talent, who was almost a freak of nature. The guy could do everything and did everything very well. He ran well. He threw well. He's one of those prototypical five tool players we talk about. And, you know, his son grew up, grew up around this game. And, you know, Griff, my son Griffin, kind of gave me a little bit of insight on, on what his confidence level is because his confidence level is off the charts. I mean, he shows no fear. Obviously, he goes up against one of the best pitchers of our generation and Max Scherzer and showed no fear whatsoever. It reminded me of Miguel Cabrera, you know, going back when he was 20 years old, you know, in the first year of the, his major league career going against Roger Clemens, he, he didn't even care. He didn't care whose name was in the back of that Jersey. He had a job to do. He was a hitter. He stepped in that box and he was going to hit the ball hard. Vlad was the same way on this stage, given uh, everything that's going around the hype, the, the TV audience, uh, the quality of the pitching that's on the mound, it shows you what kind of confidence and talent this guy has because he thought it was just another Tuesday game uh, during the season. No problem. I'm going to square up any baseball that comes in that zone. And like you said, they showed the replay. I don't know if you saw it, but they showed the replay from the home plate side and it missed Scherzer's head by about this far. He probably heard it whiz by his head and that would have been uh, tragic because that would have done some serious damage because 110... Um, it was nice that he came and gave him, gave him a hug because uh, it would have been ugly otherwise. But you know what? It's a special town, and we're watching some special players play in this game. And if people wonder, I had some people behind me at the game saying, oh, for the Derby, why don't they just let them use metal bats and it'll make it a spectacle? It's like it already is a spectacle, one. And two, fans will actually get killed. Uh, look at how hard they're hitting it with wood right back at players. I mean, could you imagine? There's a reason why they don't even use the BESR bats in college. You, you would have terrible things happening uh, to players. Yeah. I know Griffin hit, hit, can hit the ball really hard, and he un he unfortunately hit one right back at a pitcher and, and hit him in the end. He said it was a really jarring experience, and thank goodness the pitcher was okay, and they ended up circling back and uh, made sure he was good. But you, you can't control where you hit it, and when you're a guy who hits the ball hard, it's scary, but you, you can only control so much. But th that was an unbelievable performance from Vladdy. That ball he hit to me was uh, I, I was speechless and that was the derby as well I, I would love to see Vladdy back in there I know he wanted to get healthy stay healthy totally get that same with Tatis he messed his shoulder up earlier in the year makes no sense to do it so I, I was glad that those guys actually stepped outside of it because there was still a ton of talent and we were texting back and forth through the whole thing because I wanted to get your perspective because one, you have that all the differing insane camera angles that ESPN provides now. And two, of course, just your insight 
on the hitting that these guys are capable of and in a place like Coors uh, where you had so much success. There were so many different moments in this game, in this competition, excuse me, where I was thinking, how does somebody beat that? And of course it ended up being beat. And the only time it wasn't answered was with Pete Alonso. And I think that's who we have to start with is Pete Alonso, who to me, I sent you the text. I said, how does this guy not hit for more average? Because it seems like such an effortless swing. There's not that much length. He doesn't have that much movement. It's really simple. And I would expect, I mean, he's still young and he's got time, but I'm just surprised he's not able to put some better contact rates up because it seems like there's so little effort in his swing. The way he was able to just repeat it without getting tired and just pepper the left field grandstand deep out there. I mean, what did you see from Pete Alonso? Well, I saw two things. I saw a swing that is grooved for a home run competition. I mean, this guy's swing has got the perfect, like you said, it's short, but it's got that little lift, that little loop up. And number two, his BP pitcher was basically hitting his bat every single time. I hope he gives him a big bonus because this guy's BP was phenomenal. And all he did was start that groove and that swing just like he did. And he didn't have to go down and get any pitches, didn't have to go inside. It was right down the middle every time. And he just caught it up on the upswing. And he is a phenomenally strong human being. So when you get those uh, factors combined, you're going to get a phenomenal performance, especially in a place like Coors Field where the ball travels anyway. Pete Alonso just put on an absolute display. And you could tell, man, he's bopping his head. He's, they're all bringing their own playlist. So he's got his walk-up music that plays for the entire time he's hitting for three and four minutes. He's bopping his head. He's having a great time. He was made for this contest, and he loved every second of it. I loved it. And that was, that was so much fun for me. Cause he went with the old school nineties, New York rap and just was bobbing his head, having fun and the fans feed off of that. I mean, that's what you need. You, know, you need somebody having fun out there that at the end of the day, it's, it's a competition. And what I love about the home run derby above every other competition in sports is you look at the, the dunk contest. There's no more Michael Jordan from the free throw line and not to disrespect. I mean, there's all, no matter who you are in the NBA, you're an incredible athlete and an incredible, uh, mo- and in- very achieved athlete as well. But nobody's lining up to see these bench players, uh, show off their dunking skills, right? You want to see the stars of the game and baseball does a really good job of being able to maintain that. And I think that's what makes the, the Derby so impressive. That being said, Shohei Otani has had more than enough uh, attention, whether it's from, his home country, which I'm sure he, we talked about in the last episode with Ichiro and the, the notoriety that he got. Shohei's right there now already. I'm sure that he's getting just as much attention from Japan uh, that Ichiro did. And that's a lot. And then he's getting it here too. And in a lot of ways, it's positive. But then even you have uh, media members misspeaking, saying things that you know maybe they shouldn't have said. And you know that's going to come across Shohei. And I'm sure he doesn't let it bother him. I'm sure he just keeps rolling. But that just only adds to the pressure, right? It only adds to the everything that you have to deal with. And he seemed like he had a little bit of that pressure on him early in the round. And my gosh, he caught fire. And unfortunately, he gets bounced in the first round because Juan Soto was spectacular. But at the end of the day, he still gave the fans a lot of what they wanted to see. He got hot at the end. But I was worried for a second that he was just going to have the worst round ever did you just think it was nerves where he was going pull side, yanking everything? He just His BP round, by the way, was spectacular. I saw it. So it, that seemed like it was just nerves, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's in, uh, been placed on this pedestal as the man in Major League Baseball right now. And you saw the way the crowd embraced 
him when he was announced. I mean, you were there, you, you felt the energy. They love this guy. They love what he's doing. Uh, he's making history basically every time he goes out and starts, he made history last night, uh, you know, pitching the first inning and then getting in at bat uh, the very next inning. So he had a lot on him and a lot of expectations. So I know I could see in his swing that he was trying to get out there and, and really flip the ball over the fence uh, and he could tell that you could tell he was frustrated. Like you could tell he's like shaking his head, like, dang, I want to, I want to put on the show for this crowd that, that loves me so much. And when he finally dialed it back a little bit, let the ball travel a little bit, his bat speed, you could tell when, when he's swinging through the zone, it is exceptional. And when he made contact, you'd almost didn't even see the ball off the bat. It got out so quickly. So, um, I don't like, you know, we, we talked about the format and you've got, baseball's biggest star who should have moved on to the next round because he had a high enough home run total, but was bounced in the first round. Like you said, uh, I think there should be some changes made. Uh, we talked about this and we'll probably talk about it right now. Yeah. The, I, I'm glad you led me into that because to me, not only Shohei, the one that riled me up a little bit too was, was Salvi Salvador Perez had one of the best rounds. I, you could argue that was the second best round of the, of the entire tournament. Right. And he doesn't go to the next round because he had to, square off against Pete Alonso. And I get it from the perspective of this. And I think this is really what it boils down to uh, is America and people love brackets. I really just think that's what it is. I think it's just brackets are what people love, but I would love to see the four best, like we said, the four best totals advance to the next round and then go from there because you're just not really getting the best guys getting through. Sometimes somebody sneaks through and then just gets pulverized maybe by the Pete Alonzo's and those guys. It's just, it doesn't really fit. I guess it just doesn't really sit right. Uh, But still it was amazing because Mancini held up his end of the bargain and he's been an amazing story to say the least Uh, to be 16 months out from being diagnosed with stage three colon cancer, then to put on a show, uh, in the home run derby. It was not him sneaking his way in there as he was just putting up numbers. And, and I don't think people realize how much power Trey Mancini has. I know you got a chance to see him a little bit in Baltimore before, um, I guess it was in spring training before everything got shut down, but Mancini makes it look pretty easy. Uh, he's not a guy that's the most physically imposing in the world. He's not small, but he's not, you know, huge like some of these other guys like Pete Alonso, the polar bear. Uh, but how is he able to generate such easy power? And and how, how, did you know that he had that kind of pop? I didn't. I didn't. When I went to spring training last year, I, you know, I looked up his numbers and and saw that he had a phenomenal year the year before. But when you look at him, like he's, he's tall, but not like you said, not like uh, bulging muscles or anything like that. So you don't expect that kind of bat speed to come out of the body. And he's got kind of an unorthodox swing. So when you watch him take BP on the field, it doesn't look like the ball should come off the bat like it really does. Because, you know, I'm watching him in, in spring training last year and he's just the ball's jumping off of his bat and leaving the yard by, you know, 50 feet every single time. So I wasn't surprised, uh, especially in Coors, the way his ball was traveling out of there. Um, what I was most impressed with was the end. He knew he had to put up a huge number to, to get Alonzo and his BP pitcher was rapid fire, man. I couldn't believe how quickly, almost as soon as he got the ball, his bat back, the next pitch was on the way and he kept on hitting him out, kept on hitting him out. He must've been absolutely exhausted by the end of that round. I, I couldn't believe how much they were holding up. I mean, you saw Shohei like hands on his knees, just gassed. And I think people didn't realize that. And you brought up a really good point in, in the episode ahead was that it's more than just a home run competition. It's it's a stamina competition and we're at altitude and Shohei was gassed, but also so was Juan Soto. 
because Juan Soto and Shohei have, that was probably the best showdown of, of the entire event was those two guys going to a swing off and then they tied in the swing off. So you got three swings and Soto just locks in and launches three in a row. And 22 year old launching three in a row in that situation that you talk about somebody who's not afraid of a moment. We saw that in the world series with Juan Soto when he was 20, 21. And now we, you know, you just see it time and time again. What I think Juan Soto is weird as it sounds. We had the 400, 500 foot bombs. Juan Soto had one home run where he actually looked like it got on off the end of the bat. He inside outed it. And it went just about 15 feet, 20 feet off the ground and just somehow went oppo over the wall. And I was like, how did that get out? It was maybe the shortest <laughs> home run of the whole competition. And to me, it was the most impressive. Uh, what last guy I'm going to ask you about here was just what amazes you with Juan Soto? I mean, all these guys are explosive. All these guys have bat speed, but Soto is a player that doesn't strike out. He's a guy that makes a lot of contact power to all fields at 22 years old. How is he able to do that? Besides just, of course, God-given bat-to-ball skills, but what impresses you with his phys- physical swing? Well, I, I think he's more of a body swinger, so he generates everything through his body. His hips, his shoulders are all moving as one unit, and then at the very end, he just has to extend a little bit on the ball. So he's generating all that kind of bat speed with this rotational flexibility that he has that uh, I think is a little different. A lot of guys are more handsy. Uh, they'll flip the bat out there and, and really get out in front with their wrists and their hands, but he's more of a body swinger, so that means – he can let the ball travel uh, a little bit further than everybody else. So he's seeing the ball longer than most people. And I think that is what leads to his being able to lay off a, a lot of pitches out of the strike zone. That's high contact. That's not many strikeouts and high walks. This guy can see the ball longer because of that body swing that he has. And, you know, he's a strong kid and you can tell it's evident by the way the ball flies off his bat and hit the longest ball of the night at 520 feet. And sometimes it doesn't look like his bat speed as, is as impressive as the others, but because the body is generating all of that, he uh, doesn't have to extend very far to get that uh, the pop that we see. And he's going to be really good for a long time. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what kind of numbers he puts up. I think that is such a really uh, – that's an interesting way of putting it because – when I conceptualize that, when I think about it, when, when you describe it that way, is that's exactly what it looked like when he was going oppo is that he could catch it so deep because he was almost on that back hip. And like you mentioned, the body swing that he almost looks like at times he takes it out of the catcher's mitt and is still able yeah. to generate that, that power the other way. Um, and, and that's something that, yeah, the more time you have to decide, right. The easier it is to make the right decision. And, that's what we see with Soto and he's just been so special to watch. And again, only 22 years old baseball is in a good spot when it comes to the young talent. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Was there anything that caught you off guard? Anybody that like who surprised you the most in this Derby? And was there anything that just really, really stood out to you at any point during that? Um, I mean, stood out the most Perez probably surprised me the most. I didn't think he had that kind of power. Uh, he started off a little slow in his round, and then all of a sudden he just started going one after the other after the other. And that's that format thing that we wish – I wish I could have gotten to see him again in the next round because I think you get those jitters out in that first minute or so that you're swinging <laughs> out of your butt, uh, and, and you finally come back into your own uh, mechanics, your own self, and start popping them out like he did. Um, and I, I got a thing about the way the, the TV coverage too. So – you remember a couple of years ago, the ball had to land before the next pitch was supposed to be thrown. 
Well, that, yeah. that's gone. That's gone. So watching uh, as a fan on TV, I had no idea where these balls were going because by the time the camera was, you know, uh, kind of tracking the ball, it had to go back to the plate because the next pitch was on the way. So as a fan, you want to admire those majestic shots. That goes back to the, well, either the ball, letting the ball land or the outs. You know, they could track the ball the whole way when they were doing outs. And you could actually see, oh, my God, look where that ball landed, where 75% of the balls that were hit during this derby, you couldn't watch land because they had to be back on the hitter for the next pitch, which was very confusing. There's so many graphics going on that on that screen for ESPN that um, you kind of lost a little bit uh, about how truly far these guys were hitting the ball. So you think maybe for the future, because I don't think they changed that rule. And I think it's probably the right move to leave it as is because there was so much uh, confusion around it. When I was there, when I was watching the, the game in Miami, there were so many guys that were sneaking in a pitch before the ball hit the ground. And it, it seemed like it was too complicated, but maybe you have those multiple camera angles where one's always following the ball as it goes. And then the other one is following the swing. And I'm sure that's something that ESPN will be uh, working out and uh, or whoever carries it because it is something that I think is one of the best spectacles in sports. Uh, whether you like baseball or not, I think people tune in to watch that. And there's just nothing better than watching people mash home runs. But the other part, the other new part about this All-Star Weekend was the MLB draft. And this is the last thing I wanted to talk to you about because – there are some interesting components to it that I would love your perspective on because I think you have a unique perspective as a guy that was drafted very, very late. Um, but your son was also drafted very early. So you got to see two different, I guess, experiences through a, a, an MLB draft. And this year was back to 20 rounds. And this is where I think we might stay and we'll see. But last year was five rounds. And what we see is that bonus pool setup where it incentivizes teams to be creative, right? You can't trade picks. So you have a bonus pool. And for those listening who might not have a, a full idea on how it works, every pick is assigned a value and whatever picks you have, the combined value of all of those picks. So if it was the first overall pick, that was an $8.2 million value, let's say, and maybe the 20th overall pick is a $4 million value that let's say you combine all of your picks, that's your bonus pool. You can allocate that money however you want. So if you want to sign maybe a high schooler in the second round that says, I really want to go to college, it's going to take $2 million to do it. You can go over the pick value, but you're going to have to find a way to make up for that money somewhere else. So that is the unique part of it, but it's also part of the problem in some ways where you're seeing teams go over slot and then they need to make up the money and make up the savings. So they punt on a pick for a fifth year senior and give them $2,000. And that's where it gets a bit tricky. Uh, we saw a lot of money saving picks through the first 10 picks of this draft, one pick in and my mock draft was in shambles. And <laughs> that was just, that was it. It was over. So what are your thoughts on the whole draft process? Uh, do you think that there's a better way or is this kind of the best uh, opportunity or the best option of what is a difficult situation? It is a difficult situation. I don't think there's uh, any correct or ideal way to do a draft. You know, you get these clubs that get here, here's your X number of dollars. You're going to be able to sign your X number of players. And, you know, there's a lot of backdoor deals being made before the draft even starts. So I know teams contact agents and say, listen, if you're, uh, if we're going to be available for you and the 26 pick, what is it going to take to sign you? And the agent will give them a number. I'm like, no, it, it's going to be this number or we're not signing type thing. So, and the other teams know about these backdoor deals. So they're not going to pick a player that they know probably won't sign with them and has already been offered more 
uh, over slot than they have just a couple picks later. So there's a lot of that backdoor dealing that a lot of people don't know about. Um, and then when you get into the later rounds, like you say, it's, it's, you're, you're, you're drafting kids that listen out of 20 rounds, you're going to pick 20 players out of those 20 players. Statistically, maybe about two of them were actually going to make your big league roster and make an impact at the big league level. So you have 18 guys that aren't going to make it. Uh, they're not even going to make it to the big league. They're not even going to get a cup of coffee. So I, I think they put all their eggs, so to speak, in one basket. They pick out their best prospects, the best chances they're going to have to accelerate those players through the system and make an impact at the big league level. And the other guys are just fillers. They're, they're, they're making teams to uh, – you have to have teams to play minor leagues, and yeah. you have to have teams to give the prospects at-bats and competition because baseball really is the only sport that you have to, have to, have to face – live pitching all the time to hone your skill. And I think that's where is an issue that we're never going to have a, a totally perfect system for a draft. It's the backdoor dealing that kind of rubs me the wrong way, right? Because we look at other drafts and, um, you know, you have certain situations where maybe John Elway says, I'm not playing for that team or whatever, but, but that's so rare in the other, in the other draft settings of NBA, NFL, whatever it is. I understand that baseball is a bit different but I almost would rather see them be able to just trade the picks if you wanted to do that. I don't know if that would overcomplicate it because the slot value system basically is an artificial way of trading picks, right? You underslot with the first pick that allows you to overslot with the second pick so you can get somebody that you wouldn't have been able to get. So right. it, it achieves that in itself already. And the Pirates did an amazing job of navigating that this year. If they sign everybody, they just killed the draft. So when I look at that side of it, I do like the creativity it allows for, but I don't like how it comes at the expense of some seniors. And that is something that I'm not a huge fan of. Is there a way you think to be able to have the best of both worlds there where you can at least have like a floor uh, in terms of what these seniors get? I know that's a guy that's not really been in it. And of course it's all rainbow and sunshine and you can just fix everything. I'm sure that there's more to it than that, but is it more complicated than uh, just being able to have a, a floor for what these seniors get so that they're not getting $5,000, even if they're drafted in the 10th round? I mean, that's a joke. It is a joke. And it's, you know what, it's all about bargaining power. So seniors got no bargaining power. He can't say I'm going back to school because he's out of eligibility if he's a true four-year senior. So uh, these teams know that they have no negotiating power whatsoever. And that's why they give them 5,000 bucks to say, hey, take it or leave it. You know, we're taking a shot at you anyway, drafting you in the 10th round, and we know you're a senior. And uh, if you were one of the top prospects in college baseball, you would have been chosen as a junior. But maybe, like you said, a guy develops late, all of a sudden, uh, like uh, R.J. Shrek from the from Duke Blue Devils this year came oh, out of yeah. nowhere and had a monster year. I was kind of surprised that no one took a flyer on him and, and drafted him. And next year he's going to be, well, I don't know what the COVID situation, but he's going to be a senior going back and he has another monster year like that. He might not get rewarded for having two huge years like that in the ACC uh, and major college baseball. He might be one of those picks that gets 10 grand because you know, he just has no bargaining power. And I think a floor would be a nice addition, um, you know, but you're talking about a collective bargaining agreement negotiated thing. And there's pool money now because it was negotiated in the collective bargaining agreement. And as we've talked about in prior episodes that it's going to be nasty this year. And I don't think there's going to be any concessions by the owners that, Hey, we're going to give these seniors who have no negotiating power. We're going to give them a, a bottom tier level that, you know, they're going to be guaranteed 25 or 50 or a hundred grand. I don't think. Would you say happen. the players, I mean, they're, they're not for the most part concerned 
or at least in the forefront of their worries is not really the pay of minor leaguers, right? They're looking for uh, the big league CBA focus, right? I mean, is, is that kind of a back burner type of thing? The reason why I ask is we had Michael Schwimmer, uh, the CEO of big league advance, which is the, the company we talked about a little bit in the past that they're, they, give you upfront cash for a percentage of your career earnings and you can take it or leave it. But he was saying that in his experience, he didn't really see too much advocacy from players uh, with minor leaguers. Once they got to the big leagues, it was more focused on how we can optimize what's going on in the bigs, which is totally understandable. Uh, do you see that kind of thing as well? Uh, is there almost a lack of advocacy for those minor leaguers because of the fact that there's so many issues with major league baseball that these players want to take care of themselves and I don't blame them. Yeah. So when you talk about these minor leaguers and what uh, their conditions of play um, you know, I know they're happy to, to be there. A lot of guys to get, like you said, hardly anything to sign. Uh, this is their shot to possibly make an impact and, and move up levels. But even when you move up levels, double A minimum is $2,400 a month and triple A, which triple A, you think you're one step away from the big leagues, which I would think that'd be a high salary type position. They're making 2,800 bucks a month. So, uh, which is pretty much below poverty level when you look at it, uh, for a, a job. These guys have to get other jobs in the off seasons uh, to supplement their income. And with that 2,800 bucks, you have to do everything with it. You have to get a place to eat. You have to buy your own food. Um, so there's literally nothing left uh, at the end of that. And when you go home for the season or for the off season, you're basically living with your parents because you can't afford to live on your own. So I think, yeah, a lot needs to be done. Uh, and they just increased those salaries, by the way, two years ago. Yeah. Just increased them from like 1,200 bucks a month to 2,000. So Another 800 was huge to these kids, but still not enough to live on. And uh, I think more money should be put into um, the quality of life for these minor leaguers. And I think that's something that what really floors me on that topic. And I know this is, will be something that we continuously talk about uh, because you'll be very connected with that from uh, soon to be former players, as you send guys into the big leagues or into professional baseball from FIU uh, that are playing under you, as well as your son, who's climbing through the minors. And there's so much interconnectedness there that it'll be a very fluid conversation. But what really amazes me is now you're at the helm of a program and you see what, what matters and how you need to build a culture and how habits and all of the little things matter so much. And if I'm a franchise, I don't want my players worried about what they're going to eat or where they're going to sleep or how they're going to pay their bills. I just want them focused on baseball. And it doesn't seem that difficult to be able to allow them to focus on that. You could have a dorm style setup, right? Where you invest in a cheap apartment complex. These are, these are billion dollar franchises. They can handle this. And I really think it would pay dividends to what they are getting out of their players. The only team that's paying for the housing for their players right now, their minor leaguers is the Houston Astros. And you know what? Their minor leaguers have been doing pretty well this year. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but they've been doing a great job of developing talent, no matter what you say about them. And I, I think that's the really surprising thing to me. Uh, but as we get close to wrapping up here, I do realize that I forgot to ask the trivia question about you uh, that you need oh. to get. And I've been overwhelmingly positive for you. So now I'm going to go on the negative side. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but which Don't be stadium, sorry. <laughs> which stadium Don't be sorry. was the worst for you offensively with a minimum of 50 at-bats? Uh, where did you have the lowest batting average and lowest OPS offensively? Ooh. Um, uh, let's see. Let me see if I can guess geography. Is it on the West Coast? No. No. Okay. I can give you the average too, but I don't think that'll help. It'll just make you feel bad, so I won't do it. 
Uh, it's probably in the hundreds, or I'm sure, or something. Maybe yes. low two hundred. It's in the hundreds. Yeah. Oh God. Um, one seventy, one eighty two, three hundred two slash line. Yikes. Um, Four eighty four OPS. Yikes, that's awful. Uh, yeah, you know what? You know what? You also hit three hundred in more than a hundred at bats in like ten different stadiums. So uh, <laughs> good, I made up for that one. Yeah, <laughs> that one no, broke down my my career average for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you'd never played here, you definitely would have been up a couple points. But this this is uh, a place you didn't play too much over your career. Um, it's an American League spot. Chicago White Sox. No, 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 not the White Sox. But we did mention Chicago with Wrigley was your best spot yeah, that you didn't yeah. play at as a home stadium. But the answer is Minute Maid Park. Really? Minute Maid wow. Park. Wow. Yeah. Because that's the hitter's park, too. Nine for 53. Yikes. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was the pitchers that were there. I, I don't know. But this was – they had a pretty good pitching staff back. I think Oswalt was there. Oswalt, Clemens at times, um, Pettit, and the, all those guys, I'm sure, had some crossover. Yeah, Billy Wagner closing for them. I mean, it was – they had some good pitchers, but still, uh, at that ballpark, you would think that would have been much better. I like playing there, too. I like that ballpark. Really? Because that's what I was going to ask. That's why I asked the question is – I. Not to tear you down as you wear your all-star jersey anyway, so you win. Um, but just because I wanted to see if you knew, if, if you had that idea of just this is a place where I wasn't comfortable. And for me, which sounds super bizarre, but in high school, Shamanon Madonna, where we used to go play there, yeah. I was awful. I don't know what it was. I could not see the ball well at all. It was just whatever it was for me. And I yeah. don't think I ever got a hit there. And so it's just like, I always knew that even looking back, I don't even, I, you, you wouldn't even have to tell me what my numbers were. And I could tell you they were terrible. So that's on a, on a small scale with the major league stadiums. There's a lot of different variables uh, with what you can see and how the batter's eye is and all of that. So I was wondering if you knew uh, that that was one of the stadiums. So it's kind of interesting that it wasn't, it might've been just more of the circumstance of the pitchers. Yeah. And you know what? It's, um, I was very fortunate to come into an era where I got to play in a lot of the old stadiums. And then I got to play in a lot of the new stadiums because interleague came about. Um, so I think someone told me one time I played in like 43 different major league stadiums. Oh yeah. It's so I was, crazy. I was in the advent of the, you know, the old stadiums getting torn down and building new ones. And I got to play in both of those. So it was really cool. And I think that's probably why I couldn't name it off the top of my head. Cause I played in so many of them it was hard for me to uh, distinguish one from the other. Oh, that's going to be a fun stat for me to pull up. How many different stadiums you homered in? Because some of these, I, I mean, I know what they looked like, but the names of some of them, I'm like, I didn't even know. Like Network Association Field or Park in Oakland. And it's yeah. the same park, but I just didn't even know it was ever called that. Uh, exactly. But there's so many different interesting spots. Uh, even Montreal, you played five games in Montreal. <laughs> so there's just so many places. The Kingdom. You even played in the kingdom. Uh, so it's pretty cool to have that transitional period because it is a good point. We just kind of got to that point in the last 15 years or so where a lot of new stadiums came about. Last thing I wanted to mention before we wrap up, though, is I feel like we have to mention him every single time because he gives us no choice. But I went out to visit your son for his birthday out in South Bend, right behind you uh, and just missed you. But he homered in all three games we went to, um, <laughs> which was absurd and then he also put on a defensive clinic he now has 21 home runs leads the minor leagues and um it's been absurd it's been nothing shy of absurd and a blast to watch he's having fun out there uh what are you seeing in your son right now uh that maybe he didn't you didn't see as much in the first month or two of the season uh what's the difference from from him 
you know, it's just uh, for him, he's got to get into that consistent routine of uh, both preparation and in during the at bat. And I think that's where he's still finding his way is that that one pattern that really clicks with him and that one routine that he sticks with and has confidence in. Um, and I think he's starting to figure that out, you know, scary for, you know, minor league pitching right now that he's still figuring it out, I think. But, you know, he's not missing those mistakes uh, where he was early in the season. When he gets that mistake, he's hitting it hard. And with his swing, just the way his swing is, his bat path, he doesn't try to lift the ball. It's just the way it comes to the zone. It, it gets loft. And with the bat speed he produces, it goes a long way. I mean, these home runs he's hitting are not cheap by any sense of the imagination. They are going way out of these ballparks. And of course, as a, as a baseball dad watching uh, the trajectory of these balls and, you know, I get to, I, I love, I, I love when you get to watch on, on computer. Sometimes it doesn't always work, but the reaction of the, of the fielders tells the biggest story for me. And, and these guys are just, they don't even move. They just, I think they turn around to see how far it's going, but there's no movement back. Like they might have a chance to, to catch it. It's just like, Oh, there it goes. They turn around they watch to see where it lands. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So the number actually on it, which I told Griffin, he was laughing really hard is that more than 50% of the balls he's hit in the air have left the yard. So if it's in the air, if he gets it in the air, like you said, if there's a mistake, it's, it's gone. You know, that's, that's really what what it is for him right now. And uh, there's never a cheap one. And the first one that he hit, it it was, it was really funny because we were in South Bend. We're behind enemy lines. And in South Bend, there's certain areas where they really have a passion for their team. And the Cubs have been embedded in there forever. So the the fans really want to see the South Bend Cubs win. Griffin launched one and it was silent. You could hear a pin drop. And as it's flying in the air, just dead silence. But then it hit the base of the scoreboard and you just hear like a gasp from the crowd. (laughs) And I'm just standing up there like clapping. I'm probably the only person in the entire stadium clapping. Everyone's looking at me like I'm a a psycho. You're about to get killed, Um, yeah. But it was was just one of those where you almost become numb to it because I've seen him hit so many bombs. But when you hear a crowd of 6,000, 8,000 people collectively gasp, that's when you know that he's doing something special. And uh, I'm hoping it's only a matter of time before he gets a nod to double A. Typically they do it on Mondays and this is shuffling season. So I'm not going to speculate, but I'm hoping. And uh, if not, I'm going to start just tweeting like crazy and just trying to get people riled up because every time I post one of his home runs now, everyone's like, get this man up, get this man up. So, I mean, he's forcing his way up there and uh, he couldn't be doing much better. So a lot of exciting things to come. And I'm looking forward to us maybe being able to sync up for a trip to Pensacola because it's more of a matter of when, not if, uh, when he's going to get to double A there. So a lot of fun ahead. Second half of the season, on the way now. And we're going to have a lot to talk about as we get closer to the trade deadline. Uh, I know you've got amazing stories from the deadline, whether it was as a player or in the front office. So really excited to be able to ask you about how that works. Cause I don't think people really realize the intricacies of the deadline, a lot of fun things ahead and plenty for everybody to look forward to, but this is always fun. I don't think you can beat this. And I look forward to doing this again soon. We got twice a week. Apple, please verify us. I, I don't know what else we got to do here. It's been 13 <laughs> days. It's a 14 day cutoff or else I got to reach out. I don't know what you need more than Jeff Conine. I mean, that's a pretty reputable name. And I think I'm the a good customer cool. too. I got iPhones. I got Apple computers. I got it all. We're good customers. You know what it is? I think, I think it's the Xbox behind you. Uh-oh. Maybe I'll switch that out for... Uh... He's got the signed Bill Gates Xbox, but no, we should be on Apple very soon, but 
it's more of a matter of when, not if as well, but we'll see. It's a race right now. And uh, we're on Spotify. We're on a bunch of other stuff. We'll be on YouTube and you can keep up with us there. But Jeff, this is fun as always. We'll circle back in a couple of days and uh, looking forward to talking some deadline with you. Sounds good, Aram. It's been fun as always. Look forward to the next episode.